Companies want to buy carbon credits. And so we need to make sure that it's not just those companies that are driving the conversation, that farmers really have a seat at the table in the process. This is a bipartisan bill on climate, and that's, that's a big step. And I think we need to recognize kind of the path this could put us on and, and how important that is. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Farmers are taking hard hits from climate change. Flooding, irregular storms, droughts, wildfires. But what if shifts in their methods actually helped to mitigate this climate upset and put money in their pockets? In June of 2020, this past summer, a climate-related bill was proposed in the U.S. Senate with something very rare, strong bipartisan support, really strong. It was proposed by Republican Senator Mike Braun of Indiana and has two Republican senators and two Democratic senators co-sponsoring. In the House, there are 19 congressmen and women currently sponsoring it, nine of which are Republican. The bill is called the Growing Climate Solutions Act and it would create a USDA program to give farmers, ranchers, and foresters access to the ever-growing carbon markets. The program would provide training and resources for farmers to adopt practices that improve their soil health, allowing a greater amount of carbon to be sequestered into the soil, and paying out funds from the carbon market into farmers' pockets. This incentive could create benefits for rural communities, the health of your food, and create key climate action. But it is important that those participating are a part of the process as this legislation is being shaped. Today we hear from Jenny Hopkinson, who's the Senior Government Relations Representative from the National Farmers Union, which advocates for family farmers and ranchers and rural communities through education and legislation. Jenny speaks with us about the realities of what today's farmers are up against, what exciting solutions they can be a part of, and why the input of the family farmer is critical when shaping this legislation. National Farmers Union is the uh, nation's second largest general farm organization. And what that means is that we can represent farmers of, of all types and production styles. We have folks doing very small plots, an acre, maybe less, and selling direct to restaurants or CSAs. And then we have folks doing, you know, a couple thousand acres of grains uh, in the Midwest. We really kind of cover the gamut of it. The thing that makes us kind of unique is that we're very focused on uh, family farmers. You know, we're very interested in uh, family ownership of land. Um, we're very kind of opposed to corporate ownership of land. You know, we want to see less consolidation in the system. We want to see more options for family farmers across the board. And we really focus on how we can support those farms and their livelihood. And that includes rural communities. And for those listeners who aren't farmers themselves, what are some of the stressors that farmers and the farmers you're working with are dealing with right now in this country? Whether it's shorter term issues from market upsets or supply chain issues due to COVID, as well as longer term issues such as climate change. Uh, everything always comes down to the economics of it. Um, you know, farmers can't stay in business unless they are making enough money and really kind of getting that income to get from one year to the next. 
And so that's been a big problem. We've seen prices uh, fall across the board, especially for major commodities like corn and soy. We've seen kind of prices fall below the cost of production for these, these products, and, and it's making it harder for farmers to, to make a living that way. You know, this year, the COVID pandemic has really highlighted a lot of weaknesses in the, the system. You know, for years, we've had problems with corn and soy and things like dairy, um, which is another one. And you're seeing a lot of dairy farmers go out of business because there's too much milk uh, and the price is too low. But then the COVID-19 pandemic has exasperated a lot of problems. I think most noticeably has been uh, in the meat sector, right? You know, we've seen the pandemic has disrupted supply chains. You traditionally have your restaurant food service supply chain and your consumer supply chain, and they're pretty separate. And with the pandemic, you know, we've seen the supply chain shift a lot toward consumers. The system isn't built to make that shift very quickly. And then you've also seen meat processing plants shut down temporarily because of outbreaks of COVID uh, among their workers. And that's just backed up the ability for, for farmers to take animals to slaughter. You know, there were few options on where to sell, where to get your meat processed. And, and now, you know, plants are backed up by a year in some cases, you know, and if you're an independent producer and you can't get your cattle slaughtered, what do you do? So the pandemic's exasperated a lot. We've had years of uh, declining farm income. The latest I've seen is that farm income will be up this year, but that's mostly because of government payments. And that's the case for the past uh, couple of years between trade aid payments in 2018 and 2019, and now uh, COVID payments in, in 2020. So, you know, we've seen declining farm income, we're seeing record low prices, and now we're seeing just kind of complications in the supply chain that are making it just really, really tough to produce America's food supply. And then on top of all of this, here you've also got climate change. Every year, it seems we use the word unprecedented more frequently. But just going back uh, in 2019, we had record flooding across the Midwest. You know, and you look at things like crop insurance payments and other payments that are part of the farm safety net that aren't exactly designed to be a disaster program, but are increasingly being used as that because we don't have a system in place to deal with massive flooding across the breadbasket of this country. We, you know, that was last year. I think a lot of folks in some places aren't fully dried out or fully recovered. It left a lot of silt on the land and a lot of sand. It uh, destroyed homes. So you still got recovery from that. And then we started this year with more rains in the Midwest and more dam failures. And then you had a derecho in Iowa that destroyed, what, half the corn crop? We're still unclear on what that's going to look like. We're on S for named storms in the Gulf. You know, when we talk about how some of these big storms are, are hitting land, but they're avoiding these major cities, which is great for human populations, but it's not good for agricultural land and whatever is in the fields. You know, it's, it's just because it misses New Orleans, unfortunately, doesn't mean that there's no negative effects of these storms when they come ashore. And then, of course, you have the wildfires uh, in the West. And, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and we're getting smoke here, you know, and that's not to mention uh, the, the millions of acres of farmland that's at risk, uh, the threat to livestock, you know, the kind of general destruction. I mean, we're hearing from our members that, you know, they're evacuating, that, you know, you, you don't get to pick the livestock you take with you. You know, there's not a great way to protect your crops. So, so there is this kind of larger looming existential threat from climate change. Our members have long recognized that threat. We are a major farm organization where our members say, yes, climate change is real. It's happening. And, and 
we need to be at the table to do something about it. But certainly this year is really highlighting those stressors kind of in addition to those immediate problems that farmers are facing. That's a lot. You know, that's a lot of challenges that have been going on for farmers for a long time now, you know, long before even just this year. And in regards to those climate change related issues, what are some practices that National Farmers Union works on with its members to adopt to be more resilient to those unexpected weather patterns and at the same time help to mitigate the climate change itself? There's a lot of opportunities to far, for farmers to, to really lead on climate change, making land more resilient, sequestering carbon. It's there's a lot of opportunities here. And, I, and I, I'll start with, you know, this is not to say that farmers have effectively done anything wrong. I mean, we're learning things very quickly about the role that land can play in everything from water management to nutrient management to carbon sequestration. And so, you know, for years, farmers have generally kind of done what they've been told to do to protect the land to make sure it's productive. I mean, this is where their livelihood comes from. You know, and it's a very uh, information heavy line of work. There's always kind of something new and a, a better way of doing things. You know, there are certain practices that farmers can engage in that will make the land more resilient to floods and droughts that will likely have an effect on controlling pest pressures to an extent and will sequester carbon, which what is this kind of goal if we can take some out of the atmosphere. Yes, we need to make sure we're not putting as much back in. Um, but it's certainly one way to do it. And, you know, if you think about the amount of this country, you know, I think it's like half the land mass of the country is in agricultural production. So, you know, what we're starting to see is this focus on things like cover crops, um, on things like no-till production, and basically this idea that if we keep the, the soil covered and if we keep it undisturbed, there are large benefits. Um, and, and the plus side is that you do those two things and they're not actually very easy to do. And they do have upfront costs for farmers, which can be big challenges. If you do those two things, then over time, you'll see the organic matter in your soil increase. And that will result in uh, when it rains, your soil will drain better. And so it'll hang on to some of that moisture instead of just washing away the topsoil. When we're in times of drought, that moisture will then be available for, for plants, increasing your, your, your organic matter tends to encourage beneficial bugs, which keep the other pests at, at bay. And again, it's those same activities help to sequester carbon. And, you know, there's other activities you can do, but generally those are the two big ones that we talk about. And so the tricky thing has been how to engage with farmers on doing those two practices. And there's a lot of barriers, right? You need some new equipment. To, to do it and equipment is expensive. And as I just mentioned, we're not in a good time for the farm economy. Uh, if you're gonna do cover crops, that has a cost. You gotta pay for the seed. And then you have a problem with kind of getting help to farmers um, on how to do these practices. It looks different region to region. And so farmers need that assistance and that science basically to say, here's the best way to do it. And that doesn't necessarily exist in every region yet. So those are some of the challenges that they're facing on how to implement these practices. And, and frankly, they're, they're pretty understandable challenges. You know, this is pretty much asking for a, a big change in how farmers have farmed and often to make things even more complicated, often you can see a yield reduction in the first couple of years. It'll go back up afterward. You know, farms that have invested in their soil health from the research we've seen generally tend to be steadier over time. So, you know, in tough years, they do better. In good years, they do just as good. So 
so over time, you know, it, it, it's worth it, but there's a reduction in the first couple of years and that's really hard. It's really hard to see your yield go down when so many things are reliant on yield. So it's a challenging situation on kind of how we, we get these things implemented on more acres. Right, which could potentially happen through this new bill that was proposed in June, the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which has bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate, which is something that's very rare these days. And can you, in general terms, kind of talk about what this bill is proposing and what this means for farmers themselves? But basically, this bill, the Growing Climate Solutions Act, is looking to help link farmers with what is kind of a growing movement on voluntary carbon markets. And there's, depending on how you look at it, three or four of those, three or four companies are kind of, I will say four companies are working to develop systems basically where farmers implement practices that we know will sequester carbon. These companies will calculate how much carbon was sequestered. And then if a company like say Microsoft or General Mills or pick someone who's working on their own sustainability or corporate goals, to offset their carbon emissions can come to these voluntary marketplaces and say, we need, we need to offset 10,000 tons. These companies will aggregate credits from farmers and say, here's your 10,000 tons. And so the farmer will get paid for their activities, basically in a marketplace from companies who are looking to offset their carbon emissions. And so this bill, what this bill does is kind of a couple, couple different things. The crux of it is really trying to link farmers to these carbon markets through USDA. And so it would create a certification program for technical service providers. So basically the people who would be advising farmers on how to implement these practices to participate in these markets. It would create, I mean, this is something so basic, but it would create a website showing farmers your options and how to access them. Uh, and it would also create an advisory panel to basically kind of help USDA and guide USDA on what future carbon market needs are and how to best participate in these and any infrastructure and other things that USDA should do to, to help farmers participate in them. So it, it's not giving necessarily government support to these programs, but it is saying they exist and if farmers want to participate in them, here's, here's how to do it. And so we, we think that's a really good idea. You know, carbon markets are a tool that farmers should be able to have access to. They're not the only tool. We think they're not a silver bullet at the end of the day to implement the uh, kind of cover crops and no-till and kind of these land management changes on farmland is going to cost money. And this is a way to get private sector money into that, into that process. For sure. And like any legislation, it's not perfect, right? What are some elements of it that the National Farmers Union sees as potential blind spots or areas that, as you represent the farmers you want to make sure that the lawmakers keep in mind as they're shaping the legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that, you know, we've been vocal about and we've had conversations with lawmakers about, you know, I think one of the things we'd like to see is to just make sure that the standards behind the certification are, are as strong as they can be. We want to protect farmers against bad actors. I think the other thing that Farmers Union is always concerned about is consolidation. And so if we are creating what is effectively a new commodity for farmers, we create carbon as a commodity and the sequestration of carbon as a commodity, is there going to be opportunity for consolidation there? Like we've seen in the meat sector and in the seed sector and things like that. Within carbon sequestration, we want to prevent you know, large scale corporate purchases of land 
of, of good agricultural land and productive agricultural land just to sequester carbon and participate in those markets. And as National Farmers Union is kind of a bridge between the farmers themselves and policy going on in Washington, have you worked or spoke with farmers on the ground about this act or about this practice? And what is the general consensus you, you're getting back from the farmers themselves? Yeah, so back in the late aughts, um, National Farmers Union, along with our North Dakota affiliates, the North Dakota Farmers Union, created a carbon credit program. And we worked with farmers and kind of paid them to implement these practices that we've talked about, and then sold the credits on the Chicago Carbon Exchange. And so this idea of carbon markets has a long legacy at Farmers Union. And it's remembered, it, it was a very productive program at the time, the payments weren't huge, but they were enough that, you know, you could invest in your land. And I think folks, even if they weren't so sure about climate change, recognized the value in that. But, but you know, here was the latest science. Here was an organization trying to help them implement it. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was pretty, pretty productive. I think we we're doing almost uh, $10 million worth of payments in the fourth or fifth year. And it, it was on track to do even more, but it fell apart when um, cap and trade failed to pass in Congress. So Farmers Union and Farmers Union members, a lot of our members were involved in that. It's not uncommon to find folks who, who participated and say, yeah, we'd totally go back to that. People want market-based solutions, and this is one of them. They don't want to be beholden to government programs, um, and so this is an opportunity. And, and I say that, again, it's not a silver bullet. It will not work for every farm, uh, and we need to look and the government especially needs to look at programs that help those other farms. But where it can work, it can be really, really helpful. Right. And this could be seen as one element in a holistic approach that needs to be taken, right? And a lot of the methods that you're talking about that would increase the amount of carbon sequestration in the soil are methods that lie under the term of regenerative agriculture, you know, this beyond organic as opposed to current conventional agricultural practices. And if this bill were to pass, especially through the USDA, do you see this as being a big upset to current industrial agricultural methods, you know, with possibly incentivizing the reduction of inputs such as, you know, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, you know, would it really have a big impact on the full national uh, conventional agricultural picture? I think a couple of things. One is, you know, I think there have been upsets in agriculture before and, and kind of what is conventional once was probably not as conventional. Um, and so agriculture is not uh, you know, a state industry. The, the way farmers farm today is much different than farmers farmed 50 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. And so it's an industry that is, is so tuned into technology. It's an industry that's so tuned into research. And so I think practices change and farmers are aware of that. Now, you know, I think over the past 30 years, a lot of the changes in agriculture have been technology focused. So, you know, you have even more technologically advanced tractors or planters or seeds that, you know, have different traits and things like that. And so this would be a big change in land management versus that technology. So, so it's different in that regard. But, you know, I, I think kind of how much it will upend the industry or upend how we do things. I, I think things have, in agriculture get upended not infrequently. 
And so I think everyone will adapt and, you know, we'll find those opportunities and it's just going to be another shift in kind of how we operate. And before we sign off, do you have any final calls to action for the legislators? You know, any elements that you would like them to keep in mind as they shape this policy? Um, I think the big thing that, you know, we would like and something that we always call for, and, and I will say I think that um, kind of the leaders on this bill have been good about is just to keep farmers at the table. It is a way of life that is very um, particular. It's, it's, it's your livelihood, it's your job, and it's your home. And so I think just making sure we are ground-truthing this idea and any others that come along uh, on the climate space in, in what, in, with farmers and ranchers and, and what they really need and ensuring that that voice is prevalent, especially as you know, companies want to buy carbon credits. And so we need to make sure that it's not just those companies that are driving the conversation, that farmers really have a seat at the table in the process. And any final calls to action for the general public, you know, all the food consumers out there, either in regards to voicing their opinion on the bill to the representatives or ways that we can support our nation's farmers and food producers? Yeah, well, there's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot on that. Um, I think, first of all, you know, any opportunities folks have to engage with farmers, uh, engage at farmers markets, know where their food is coming from. When farmers can sell directly to consumers, they, they tend to be more profitable. So kind of getting to know where food comes from and the idea that if there's a lot of work that goes into that hamburger or bowl of cereal, really kind of understanding the system, I think is always really important for consumers. You know, and, and generally, I think on this legislation, you know, this is a bipartisan bill on climate. And that's, that's a big step. And I think we need to kind of recognize that and recognize kind of the path this could put us on and, and how important that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is something that we should definitely appreciate, no matter what part of it we stand on. And before you go, I know National Farmers Union is involved in some other interesting methods for farmers to get involved in climate change mitigation you know, from biofuels to renewables being placed on their farmland. Do you mind giving us an overview of some of the opportunities for these other solutions? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for bringing up biofuels, um, because that's a big one. And that's an important one. This is a kind of one of those market-based solutions again. How do we make sure that we're not just looking to the government to kind of support agriculture? And so biofuels are really big opportunity, right? And we've learned a lot in the past 20 years about biofuels, about ethanol in particular. And I think, you know, we're a long way away from moving away from liquid fuels. So there's a lot of great work being done on biofuels, kind of uh, reducing their emissions and also kind of creating an option for farmers. This is a renewable American grown fuel that has a lot of potential in the, um, uh, especially in the vehicle fleet. You know, we know higher blends of ethanol can be fine in vehicles. The research is is there. Uh, And so we like to see more of an expansion of the use of biofuels. This administration uh, has been somewhat problematic on that, especially when it comes to things like small refinery exemptions, where they're letting sometimes major oil refineries avoid their uh, ethanol commitments under the law. So we think biofuels is a big opportunity. Uh, And again, it's another market for farmers. There's a lot of regions of this country that, you know, it's really helped boost farmers' income being able to sell into the ethanol supply chain. At the same time, ethanol has taken a really big hit during um, COVID and kind of will hope, we would hope that there's 
some support in any future uh, pandemic relief package for, for biofuels. And then on the renewable energy piece, you know, I mentioned that about half this country, half the land mass of the country is in agricultural production, and that's, that's a lot of land. And increasingly, we're seeing technological advances in uh, renewable energy systems, you know, wind and solar are the two big ones, of course, that we think about, but then there's some others, you know, and so how do we look at either powering farms with renewable energy, so solar panels on, on barns and, build, or, and other roofs, and, and then wind turbines in various places, or how do we do this in a scale to sell into the grid, you know, and wind turbine siting isn't isn't that big, you can do it in agricultural lands, and we're seeing some of that, you know, we're increasingly seeing work done with uh, solar panels of can you make them a little bit more see-through so you can either grow something underneath or you can graze livestock underneath them. There's a farm down in Georgia called White, White Oak Pastures and they've done a lot of work on kind of pasture-raised livestock and how to do a kind of closed-loop system. So they've had some work done and their, their operation is a huge carbon sink. And so they are now uh, looking into kind of working with a local solar company on grazing between solar arrays and underneath solar arrays. So, you know, you've kind of got this, this mutual benefit between renewable energy production and, and livestock production. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, you know, there's certainly some uh, more research that needs to be done. You need to ensure that these systems are uh, affordable for farmers, uh, and be that through tax credits or other, other opportunities, but certainly there's, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, no, that is really exciting and promising and really interesting that the potential of, you know, more transparent solar panels and what options that can provide. Yeah, no, there's, there's uh, solar panels. There's a lot of interesting, you know, if you can graze between them, can you put solar panels on marginal land that maybe isn't as productive for agriculture, but then you can sell the energy and, and get some income that way. Kind of where, where can we put these things that makes the most sense and kind of really it is mutually beneficial because that's what a lot of this stuff is. I mean, if you can, if something is a win-win, it's, it's, it makes more sense. Farmers at the end of the day, they're business people and they have to do things that work for their bottom line. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. Thank you so much to Jenny Hopkinson for joining us. You can follow all of the National Farmers Union work at nfu.org and on social at National Farmers Union. We encourage you to check out their recent article on the indigenous origins of regenerative agriculture and their partnership with Minorities in Agriculture, Natural Resources and Related Sciences, or MANNERS, to foster diversity and inclusion in the agricultural field. The Growing Climate Solutions Act is currently in committee. You can track its progress at congress.gov and reach out to your senators and U.S. representatives' offices to voice your opinion on the bill. This episode was done in connection with our previous episode, where we spoke with organic farmer Bob Quinn on his thoughts on the bill and other elements of the holistic approach that's needed to improve our food systems for the environment, the farmers, and public health. Be sure to check out that episode if you haven't already. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe for more stories and share these episodes with others to hear inspiring action to help you find your role in a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and the advancement of a thriving planet for all.